All right, wonderful. We are live. Welcome back, everyone. This is the final session of A Sabbath of the Land for You, Shemitah, Ethics, and Jewish Philosophy with Ms. Zager and Ms. Renana Dine. Uh, this is almost, almost the last class in our Shemitah programming, um, but we do have a lot to look forward to coming up, uh, including it was just announced that our entire winter's month is being moved online. So if you were thinking, wow, I would really like to participate in that, but New York is all the way in New York, here's your chance. Uh, we are still accepting applications and we really hope to see some of you there if it works for you. Um, but for now, we're, we're going to enjoy this final session. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's take it away, Ms. Zager, Ms. Dine, please. All right, can everyone see that? Great, all right. Well, welcome uh, welcome to our final meeting. Thank you for being along for the ride. Um, I know Sarah and I have had a really fun time doing this together. Um, and uh, we got to actually work on this final source sheet in person together, which was really amazing. Um, and this is probably maybe the most maybe the most theoretical of our classes, but I think we're really excited and I think it'll be a great um, a great class to end on. I think of a really much larger theme in Jewish ethics and Jewish thought, but that is really directly tied to some of the ideas that Shemitah and in particular really Yobel, the Jubilee year brings up. Um, Sarah, do you have anything you wanna add before I jump into our first source? Um, I think I'll I think I'll let you let you go right ahead, and we'll 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 sort of see the ways in which this this opens up a lot a lot bigger theoretical questions uh, as we go. Great. So I'm going to just quickly read um, a source that we have again looked at before from Baikra from Leviticus on jubilee jubilee or on Yobel and the concept of freedom. Um, just to get us started. Um, I'm going to read this. I'm not actually going to open up the floor to discussion right after because I want to make sure we have time for a really uh, rich set of sources. But I just want to set the ground of why are we talking about the concept of freedom at all? What does freedom have to do with the concept of Shemitah and Yovel? So let me just give me give this a quick read. So very famous passage um, for those of us well acquainted with American history, um, the line of um, you shall proclaim release or freedom throughout the land is on the Liberty Bell. It's one of the like kind of central ideas of freedom in Western thought, honestly, um, comes from this passage, this idea that in the Jubilee year, you're going to proclaim some kind of release, some kind of freedom uh, for all of the inhabitants of the land. And it will be kind of a resetting of some idea of liberty and freedom. What is this idea of liberty and freedom? That's what we're going to be exploring. 
Um, but when it comes to the concept of freedom or of liberty in Jewish thought, uh, much of it revolves around a tension between wanting to hold on to some idea of human freedom and liberty and considering that an important value both like kind of philosophically and politically and we'll get into some of the politics or some of the political sources later um but also we consider ourselves to be a people who are the servants of god who are obligated in 613 different things um and and have this sense of a heavy burden of obligation the most um kind of potent or line that i think really kind of captures this tension in this debate in just like one really beautiful sentence uh, comes from Psalm 116. We say it in Hallel. Um, right. Please, Lord, since I am your servant, the son of your maidservant, you have opened my chains. So how can we declare ourselves to be the servants of God? Not only are we the servants of God, but we are in a long chain of servants of God. This is a generational kind of servitude. Um, and at the same time, praising God for releasing us from our chains, from opening us from some kind of bondage. So just that kind of one sentence really encapsulates um, this tension between obligation, servitude to God, uh, you know, classically kind of halach halachic obligation, um, and an idea that somehow being in relationship with God, being the people of God is meant to somehow free us. So before we kind can of I just add one thing on that, I think I think it's worth noting also, right, like it, we can think about this in a kind of strictly halachic way, but a lot of the uh, thinkers in the modern tradition also will want to think of it as a sort of general statement about obligation um, and a general statement about kind of being either being part of a people um, that has that sort of bestows on you certain kinds of responsibilities or maybe just being a human person comes with this kind of paradox of on the one hand being obligated to those around you in some fundamental way and at the same time uh, being free in virtue like specifically in virtue of your ability to regulate your your own uh, conduct or your um, or have it regulated. Um, so there's there's a way in which even even once we get out of the halachic frame, it, it still plays a really important role for a lot of Jewish thinkers. Yeah. Before we turn into the first kind of heavy philosophical source, I wanted to see if anyone quickly has thoughts about this tension. Is this something that's familiar to you? Have you ever thought about this? I know that at some point when this verse was pointed out to me, actually while I was studying at Jerisha, um back in the summer of 2013, I think, I found this a really uh, like powerful verse to kind of encapsulate what I felt like it meant to kind of be a Jew, was to kind of simultaneously be a servant, obligated, and also free. All right, well, you're right, and Shai Held has talked about this, right, the contrast between Haro and how he set up his servitude and then the laws that God proclaims to us, giving a Shabbat, other things, to say, yes, you know, you are my servants, you have to fulfill my will, but it's not as cruel. And you could say, I guess take it a step further and say, you know, the way God has set up the world, if we serve him, it ultimately benefits us, humanity, and all too. So we're we're but you know, for whatever reason, he wants us to voluntarily take on that kind of servitude and duty. And when we do our duty, the world's a better place and we're better for it. 
That's the theory anyway. Yes. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think it's, can everyone, can you hear me? Okay, cool, that works. Um, it's, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of like, I feel like this is the thing I think about when people talk about freedom, this sort of idea of like the freedom from versus freedom to kind of thing is like a thing that is like, you know, I feel like really relevant in the way people talk about freedom nowadays. It's like, is freedom just like me being able to do something, whatever I want, whenever I want, or is it like, I have, because I am free, I have responsibilities. I think like the Torah, the Tanakh is saying the latter, not the former. Like you're free, to, you're free from oppression to then serve the world in a certain way, not just free from oppression to do whatever you want to, whoever you want, whenever you want to. For sure. And I think that, that the sort of one, one classical understanding is we are free to a new a, sort of a set of responsibilities um, and not just free to do whatever we want. Yes, Sarah. Yeah, just I think I think there's a way of kind of amplifying that point, um, which which we see pop up in certainly a lot of the like German uh, German modern thinkers love to talk this way that that it's only through real freedom is the freedom to have the ability to follow the rules. Um, it's real freedom isn't a lack of constraint because a lack of constraint is actually just chaos. Real freedom is the ability to to opt to decide to behave in a certain way to to be able to act according to duty. Um, so that, you know, they're all that happy to talk to anyone later who wants to know more about the kind of history of how that comes to be a really central argument for them. Um, but it, it, it really plays a big, a big role drawn out of, of these kinds of sources. All right, so I'm gonna, we're gonna dig into our first uh, kind of heavy philosophical source. Um, so this is coming from a very recent book, I think 2015. Is that right, Sarah? 2018, I believe. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really recent. Okay. Um, by Mara Benjamin, The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity in Jewish Thought. Uh, this is a book that uh, is both dear to, to me and Sarah. Both of us have worked uh, fairly extensively on, on it and using its ideas for various sort of academic projects we've taken on. Um, and she's in very much responding to some of the people who Sarah kind of mentioned, these like German um, modern Jewish thinkers. But she wants uh, to take Jewish thought in a new direction um, by putting this lens of maternal subjectivity, the kind of way of seeing and understanding the world having, having been a mother, both kind of biologically and through adoption. It's a very interesting, interesting lens, an interesting book. And to kind of think through how Jewish obligation is similar and maybe dissimilar to the kind of obligation that a mother has for a young child. Um, it does, there are a lot of interesting things that come from thinking about obligation this that way, but she also kind of explains what that means uh, for the concept of freedom in her thought. Um, so is there someone who uh, wants to volunteer to, to read this paragraph? I'll go ahead. Okay. Uh, Mara Benjamin, The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity in Jewish Thought. To live with and be responsible for a newborn, a baby, a toddler, is to suddenly wake up to one's unfreedom. It means having the concrete experience, dozens of times each day, of being beholden to another. This unfreedom feels at times like slavery, abdut, and times like service, avodah. For this condition, so acutely, viscerally, and materially experienced in caring for a young child, 
reveals a basic but easily occluded fact of existence. Uh, maternity lifts sometimes rips the veil from our eyes, opening us to, to recognize unconditionality. And yet we cannot simply submit if the act of compliance is to retain its ethical force. If we are threatened into submission to this world of obligation, the system is morally and psychologically unsustainable. Gravity becomes domination. Agency is crucial to human flourishing, even if it consists only in affirming the conditionality of our existence and thus upholding what we are we're forced to accept. So I realize that this is a, a, a meaty source. So I'm wondering um, if we can kind of answer maybe some questions and get some ideas on the table. Um, so the first one is what, what is freedom here? Um, what's, what's her sort of understanding of, of what freedom is or isn't? Well, she talks about unfreedom. Does she talk about freedom or she just talk about unfreedom? Well, sometimes we can we can try and get a definition from its opposite. Um, but she talks, I mean, agency here would be another kind of term for for some kind of freedom, which maybe is also an interesting, uh, interesting word choice. Um, and what 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 does she think? What what is this unfreedom that she's talking about? Well, first of all, is it does it relate to the fact she had the not everybody has this, but she had the freedom to become a mother or not. And in taking on, making that free decision to become a mother, she in fact tied herself to a very unfree existence as that happened. But there's a certain freedom in that service is where she might be going with this, or what I might say in response. Yes. <laughs> She, talk, she does talk about that in, in some place else in the book that um, she, she did have the choice to become a mother, like particularly in her case as a, um, as a woman married to another woman. Um, but once she, took, once she made that decision, she no longer, she wasn't free to, to walk away, right? She, was, she, she did take on the obligation um, which she could have chosen not to, but once she she had taken on the obligation, it sort of totally um, encompassed her life, and there was no way that she could kind of lift that obligation from her. She go ahead, Sarah. I think at the same time she's actually making an even stronger claim than this, right? She she definitely acknowledges the ways in which she you know opts to become a parent, especially. Um, yeah, given given sort of you know the, the the kind of different kinds of steps that she has to take in order to make that possible, um, but at the same time, I think what she's when she says this line about maternity lifts sometimes rips the veil from our eyes, opening us to recognizing our conditionality. Conditionality is one of those philosophical words that sounds like you know what it means, but it doesn't. But it doesn't mean quite what you, like it's it's being used strangely, um, and and she just means being being put under certain conditions that limit what you can do, right? So that limit the kind of freedom, freedom, uh, freedom from that like impose constraints on what on what's possible and therefore, you know, might might limit your freedom from. Um, and the in that way, maternity lifting sometimes 
ripping the veil from our eyes is actually revealing something that was true all along, which is even if you haven't had children, you're still in the situation where there are things you can't walk away from. You can try to run, but you're not gonna get very far. Um, so I think, right, and she sort of mentions this at the end, also agency is crucial to human flourishing, even if it consists only in affirming the conditionality of our existence and thus upholding what we are forced to accept. Um, and I don't think she means that only for mothers. I think she means that for anyone who's kind of embedded in human life um, and perhaps especially embedded in, you know, care giving relationships, whether they be of young children or older parents or, uh, oh no, sorry, the standing desk is moving. Um, sorry about that. Uh, or um, I'm at my, my spouse's desk. Spend a little bit more time explaining conditionality because I got hooked on that word and it's, yeah, it's tricky, right? So yeah. I think one good way to think about it, because it's a strange word, um, is it's just to strip it down to condition, right? So you might you might think of condition as like a car is in good condition. That's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about like the conditions that make something possible mm -hmm. um, or the conditions that make something impossible. And so philosophers like like to talk about the unconditioned. Um, as a way of talking about like God or, or sort of something that has no constraint at all, can do anything. Um, and we're all conditioned, i.e. there are limits on what we can do. So, and that they come, they come before us in a certain way. They, they, they are, they're just embedded in the world that we enter into and not something that we have like control over or created necessarily. Right. And that, so the idea is that like, it. She, part of what Mary is trying to do is, or is, is respond to a philosophical approach that's become really powerful in, in the sort of hundred years before she writes this book that, um, that assumes that the best way to think of people is sort of starting out inherently free and then various things come and impinge on them. And she's trying to say that's a backwards way to think about it because in fact, we, are always conditioned by these forces that come before us. Um, does that make sense? That, that, yeah. that clarify a little bit? So it's not just, I think for her, like maternity and maternal experience is a good way to understand or kind of dramatize what the way that that's the case. Because when you're, when you're there with the crying baby, the demand is really like audibly physically present, but that's true for anybody in any situation, once you actually start to look at the way they're embedded in relationships with other people. Thank you. It's, it's uh, to me, it, um, it, it sounds kind of like what she's saying, while you're explaining it also, Sarah, is like, um, freedom, freedom is realizing we have or being able to take on responsibilities. Like it's, oh, I am responsible for being a human being that is relating to other people in a, you know, kind way. I am responsible for being a parent to a child. And that is like, me, my freedom is like knowing that, understanding that, and like being able to do those kinds of things or realizing that I always had to do those kinds of things and sort of like having like the agency and ownership over those kinds of things makes you, makes you freedom, makes you have freedom, <laughs> makes you freedom. yeah. I think it's also helpful um, to just now bring this into a little bit of context, which is that he's responding to the very famous Agadar Midrash that about uh, the giving of 
Revelation, the Ten Commandments, where, you know, God is holding Mount Sinai over the Jewish people or the, the Israelites and saying, you know, do, do you accept this? And if you don't accept it, I'm going to drop it on, 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 you know, the mountain on you guys and you're going to be crushed. Is that a free acceptance of the obligation of, of being a Jew? Are we just born into kind of being obligated and it's not a choice that we take on? Instead, we're kind of always, we're always in this state of being obligated to Torah and to God or whatever. Um, and that wasn't necessarily chosen in the way that we think of that term, but rather, again, like with the, the kind of experience of being a mother, you can affirm your own responsibilities and there's a freedom in that, but you are, you are endlessly caring and responsible and obligated to this child who is not, you know, you might've chosen to become a mother in certain ways, um, but you did not choose to have this child. Any last thoughts on that, uh, that passage before we, before we move on to something quite different? As, as I understand it, she's saying that simply submitting would be the, would undermine the value of this conditionality because it would take away from, if you just simply submit like a slave, you're taking away the ethical dimension of the relationship and the fact that it is a constant choice. It's sort of a submission that you're constantly balancing between freedom and lack of freedom, I think. Yeah, I think that's that's actually really helpful in thinking about the freedom is in sort of at every moment making the choice to live out the responsibility. It's it, the freedom is is actually doing the right thing and going to comfort the crying baby, which you're sort of obligated to do, but you're still choosing to to go and do the that that thing that you are obligated in, and you can kind of take ownership of that responsibility, um, and that's where you have agency that's where you can kind of have some sense of of freedom within being a constrained person being an obligated person funny and i don't ezra klein in his podcast recently i forget exactly the context somehow got on the the, the topic of the giving tree a book and um how I guess at some point he really liked it as a th and then he realized it was really actually you know, a lot about oppression about having to give up your whole life for this child or whatever and then uh, but then being getting pushback in when he was giving a talk or something when somebody said you know I have an autistic child and this is basically what I do but it's a calling and it's you know it's just tremendously rewarding even though that's you know maybe not what I signed up for so even in sort of modern political discourse or these kind of things it, it, it comes up yeah, it is funny. The giving tree uh, is this like lightning rod now of like, is that actually an abusive relationship? I actually kind of like what you're saying of like, it definitely it's it's not, there, there are problems with it as a model for relationships, but sometimes it is right to have a relationship where, where you know, for a period you're giving a lot of yourself, right? The the, the new mother or the new parents to a, to a really young child is not, is giving a lot and not necessarily tangibly benefiting or all these things. So it's an interesting read on that on that text. Um, we can move on to our 
next source, we are going to return to Shemitah here um, and try and think through how Shemitah itself, at specifically, why is it about freedom? Or why is Shemitah and Yovel about freedom and, and these tensions between freedom and obligation? Wonderful. So we're gonna, um... We're gonna look at uh, sort of two two texts that are kind of related, and I think he's kind of playing with the same themes from this Fat Emet Yehuda Arielib Alter, who was kind of a, a a member of a Hasidic dynasty. He was almost made the Ger Rebbe until he was like, nah. I don't really want to be the Gerarebi. Um, so then he wasn't a Gerarebi, um, but he he wrote a kind of a, a beautiful Perush on Tanakh, among other things, um, that has, it, it sort of weaves in Midrashic stuff and Hasidic stuff and, and does a kind of a panoply of different things. Um, but what's really striking to me is that in, in different places, he repeatedly turns to the idea that Shemitah an observance of Shemitah was a prerequisite for the giving of Torah and therefore a kind of ticket to a certain kind of freedom. Um, and he links these th things together in a really interesting way. In order to see how he does that, um, we're going to need to spend, we're going to do some work kind of just getting acquainted with the Midrashim that he's using because he assumes that you know all of Midrash Rabbah basically by heart and don't have to look things up. But if you, like me, are a mere mortal, um, then you, you uh, for my many sins, I, I have to have to look these things up in a book because um, I have not yet learned, learned memorized all of Midrash Rabbah. So um, I hope you'll, you'll join me on that journey, but it's going to take a few steps to kind of build up the picture that he wants. So we're going to start with just like a brief reminder of um, of the pasuk that he's commenting on, which is about hakel, um, this like ritualistic kind of gathering of the people and then performative giving of the Torah. So can I get someone to read uh, read just those verses in, in Devarim and Deuteronomy uh, in a language of your, your selection? I can read. Great. Gather the people, men, women, children, and the strangers in your communities that they may hear and so learn to revere the Lord your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Okay, great. So this is just a kind of description of what's going to happen. And that's the pasuk that the Sfat Emet is going to comment on as we go. So Renana, you can, you can scroll down. I tried to scroll down on my own screen and lo and behold, it does not work. Okay. I have the power. Um, yeah, wonderful. Okay, so can I get someone to read? And I want you to stop every time there's like a, a space um, in, in a sort of paragraph break in what I've written out, because that will allow us to kind of move at a, at a pace that we can keep up. Uh, Richard, go ahead. It seems that it was through the mitzvah of Shemitah that they merited Heat kolalut. Right, this is right. the language. So can I give you two seconds on heat kolalut? Because this is one of these like Hasidic terms that if you're not like, you could probably guess what it means grammatically. Um, but if you're not like holding in the particular sort of discourse, you might not not know what he's doing. Um, heat kolalut is a kind of Kabbalistic or really more Hasidic than Kabbalistic term for talking about something being different parts being brought together and maintaining their identity while still becoming part of a whole. Which you might 
which you can see how that's kind of related to Hakel, these people kind of gather together and they maintain some individual responsibility, but they're also part of a whole. So he's going to say it's because of Shemitah that they got this, they got to do this. This is the language that is written about receiving the Torah, gather the people, that they may hear every word of this teaching. And it seems that this was the reward for observing Shvi'it, the seventh year, that our rabbis interpreted mighty creatures who do his bidding. Okay, so now you're going to be like, what, what, what is actually, what's actually going on with that? That's basically all you get from, from this little chunk of spot I meant, but in order to understand it, we're going to kind of break out the Midrash he's using, and then we'll see, see what he's trying to do. So, we're now going to talk about the mighty creatures. And the way I've, just so you understand the way I've formatted it, um, Leviticus Rabbah is, so Svadimet is the outermost indent, and then Leviticus Rabbah is the the next indent, and then Tehillim is indented further from there, so you can see how, how the kind of layers work. Uh, you're muted. So for, so for Tehillim, we get, bless the Lord of his angels, mighty creatures who do his bidding, ever obedient to his bidding. Rabbi Yitzchak says about those who keep Shemitah, who keep the Shemitah year, the verse is speaking. In the normal custom of the world, a person performs a mitzvah for one day a week, one month, but not for the whole rest of the year. And here they guard their field and their vineyard, Bira and Bira, and pay their taxes and are silent. Is there a greater hero than this? And if you say it's not speaking about those who keep Shemitah, it said here, performers of their word, Davar. And it said in Davarim, and this is the matter, the Davar of Shemitah. Just as Davar above is about those who keep Shemitah, so Davar here is those who keep Shemitah, the performers of their word. Okay, so Irina, can you just scroll up back to the, the Pesukim so that we can, can actually see? Yeah, a little bit more. Great. Okay. Um, so, so what he's done, and what the what this midrash has been basically, is take, try to ask the question: Who are these mighty, mighty, um, who are these mighty creatures that we're talking about? The mighty creatures are the people who keep shemitah. Why? Because normally, doing a normal mitzvah requires sort of only a momentary kind of resistance or sort of forbearance or something. Um, but Shemitah requires that you hold, you keep it going for a whole year. Now you might say that that is a uh, kind of, oh, beautiful. Thank you, Renan. Um, you might say that that is a kind of strange picture of how other mitzvot work, um, because it's not as if you can go around, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, eating eating ham and cheese sandwiches uh, once a year. Um, but it might nonetheless, I think part of what he's doing is he really has in mind mitzvot aseh here. And it's hard to come up with a mitzvot aseh that you, maybe there are mitzvot aseh that you do all the time, sort of a half the rest like mocha kind of things. Um, but many of them are not the kind of thing you do all the time. You do them in particular moments when it's, when it's sort of appropriate or necessary to do them. Um, but Shemitah doesn't work that way. Shemitah you really do for the whole year. And there's something about that that requires a certain kind of strength. And it's actually that ability to engage in um, sort of a sustained forbearance or pulling back from the world that means that you get the you get to Torah. We haven't gotten that the Torah is freedom piece. We're going to get there in a minute. 
But for the moment, it's just the idea that something about Shemitah being as difficult as it is, is actually what merits Israel receiving the Torah in the sort of hakel form, at least in the kind of different moments when, when B'nai Israel receives the Torah. Um, and I think, yeah, Harvey. So rather than saying that um, because we um, keep the, we're kind of reversing Shemitah is the reward for the Torah or is it the other way around? I think it's the other way around in the sense that to the, now Torah is given multiple in multiple ways in multiple times, but there's something special about that moment of Hakel and the kind of public reading that goes on. Right. And that that version of receiving Torah is and that that for the Sfatimat has this kind of mystical function of everybody maintaining their identity, but also becoming one. That's what Shemitah makes possible. And that's a form of a kind of receiving of Torah for him and his like little, you know, somewhat somewhat unusual mystical Hasidic kind of framework. Um, but that allows I think part of what he's, he gets at here, which is something we've talked about all the way through this class, is that Shemitah is in some sense an individual mitzvah, in some sense an individual project, but it's inherently social as soon as it starts in a way that other things you know, um, might, not, might not quite be. Um, and that there's something about the kind of communal participation in Shemitah that makes it connect well i can also imagine that in some ways what with this connection um happens because right the idea of that blowing of the shofar on yom kippur and the declaring of release or freedom is supposed to be a moment of gathering the entire people right this idea that the, that the shofar blast will be heard by everyone um so that 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 idea of like declaring freedom is also one of, of sort of a kind of gathering of the people and I don't know, maybe we could even think of a of a new kind of revelation, a new start, a new freedom. That's beautiful. I had not thought of that that connection, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and right, that there there's a kind of hakel hakel two point, you know, hakel reenactment almost. But what you're receiving is a new social fabric, or an opportunity to redo your social fabric, um, rather than rather than something else. So we, 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 every seven years, we teach Shemitah. And at, that, at the end of that Shemitah year is when we have Akel. Is that, am I following it correct? I think, well, there's a, there's Shemitah at the, or there's, there's a kind of pseudo Hakel at the beginning is what, I think what Renana was saying by. Yeah, and, and I think that's more of Yovel, which would be every 50 years. Yeah, right? the, yeah. The declaring of Yovel and, and the blowing on the shofar. And I could scroll up to the beginning. Um, but it happens, it's supposed to happen on Yom Kippur of Yovel, right? That, so, the the Hakel thing, I think, is every Shemitah year, like Hakel itself. I know in, in the modern state of Israel, they do like a mini Hakel thing where the president reads from like parts of the every seven. Like yeah, I, I think that the Hakel itself is part of, I think it's at the beginning of the Shemitah, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, but maybe, I'm, maybe I've gotten it backwards, I don't remember. Um, yeah. So that's how he's kind of, he's got that tradition, but then he's sort of linking, linking the ideas in, in an interesting way. Okay, so he hasn't, we haven't get, gotten the kind of really, the, the piece that's gonna connect up to what we were just doing, which is the idea that Torah itself is freedom or is a form of freedom. Um, so we'll get that in the, in the next little, little page that he has. 
Okay. I get someone else to read, do the same thing, stop every paragraph. Uh, I'll go ahead. Thank you. It is through this, these mitzvot, and the rest spot, it is through these mitzvot, Shemitah and Yovel, that the blessings of the land of Israel are rooted in the heavens. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. You can read the passage both. And it says in uh, Kohelet, Happy are you, O land, whose king is a master, and whose ministers dine at the proper time with restraint, not with guzzling. And refers to when the children of Israel ruled over the land, when they held fast to freedom. And the person is called free because of the power of Torah, as our sages of blessed memory wrote, there is no one who is free except someone who is busy with Torah, whose ministers dine at the proper time and is written at the correct time. With restraint, with restraint of Torah, and is written, mighty creatures, people who do his bidding, Right, so just, just remember that's the pasuk that we had from the, the previous one. So even though he's writing these on different uh, different parshiot, but he's using, right, he's, he's pulling from the same language because he's pulling from a sort of similar batch of Midrashim. And he's making a little a little pun, right? Because he's got um, bigvura, right? Yochelu bigvura velovish v'shevi in the, at the, at the, in, in Kohelet, and then he's got the Giburei Koach in, um, in Tehillim that, that we cited earlier. Um, okay, mighty creatures who do his bidding, and our sages interpreted this referring to those of sort of Shemitah. And we interpret the verse, but they who trust in the Lord shall renew their strength, Koach, is referring to those who keep Shemitah and Yovel, who are called those who trust in the Lord because they do not sow or thresh. And because of this, they receive renewed strength and a new soul from above. Great. So, Fernanda, okay. can I ask you to scroll back up one more time? So just to review the moves he's made, because it's it, he, he's a very kind of condensed, he's one of these, like, Narshanim, uh, who's very, like, very condensed in the way he writes. Um, so he starts out with a... Um, this, this pasuk from Kohelet, which sort of describes two things. And I think two descriptions of power, but also potentially of freedom, right? On the one hand is the king who is a master, the king who is in control, right? And that might be a kind of the king who's got, like he's got freedom from, he's got freedom too. He's no one's gonna get in his way and he can do whatever he wants. And then he's got, the ministers who dine at the proper time with restraint and not with guzzling. And that might be a different kind of freedom. It's a kind of freedom that's that's characterized by a pulling back, by restraint, by sort of regulation, by being organized in a kind of way. So that's that's maybe the second model of, of freedom that we've been we've been playing with this whole time. And that's sort of implicit in the Pasuk. Um, and he's going to link that up with a rabbinic tradition that says the only person who is free is someone who's busy with Torah. Now, you might look at someone who's like really Osekba Torah as being not free to do anything else, right? Not free even maybe to, you know, do the kind of care labor that, that Benjamin is talking about or not free to, I don't know, uh, do whatever other kinds of pursuits they might be doing. But there's something in the minds of the rabbis that, um, that Torah kind of opens up as a kind of mode of freedom that wouldn't be otherwise accessible. And so then the question is, what is, what is the, 
you know, you might think of restraint and pulling back as a form of weakness. And he wants you to kind of unread that. So when he says, no one is free except someone who busies themselves with Torah, that allows him to read bigvura, gvura, not as like, um, not as sort of internal restraint, but actually the restraint of Torah itself. Um, and whether we read that as Torah kind of narrowly construed, like Torah as here are a bunch of laws, or Torah as a kind of broader enterprise and study and means of practice and sort of mystical force in the world, even um, I think is kind of open to us. But in either either case, the power that comes in restraint and in pulling back and kind of not guzzling whatever's in front of you, to use Kohelet's metaphor, is linked to Torah. Torah is what makes that possible for him. Um, and then, right, he he's going to link. He says, I already know there's a Midrashic tradition that links Giburei Koach, right, also kind of etymologically linked to Gvura, as people who, who observe Shemitah. And that's also linked to Torah in this kind of Hakel receiving the Torah moment. Um, so all those things are, are sort of grouped together in his mind. And actually, one's strength, maybe here a more physical, literal kind of strength, is, um, is renewed precisely by this pulling back, this refusal to work the land, refusal to engage in the kind of physical labor that might be built into it, all of those kinds of things. So one shows one's trust in God, but also one's, one's kind of internal strength by pulling back. And that pulling back is in fact made possible by, by Torah. Um, so I want to pause there and just reflect for a minute on whether we think that's like a compelling vision of freedom and the freedom is made possible by Torah, maybe a potentially a disturbing vision. Um, I see a Harvey's got a hand up, so I'll, I'll call on him as you all maybe yeah. think a little more about that question. I mean, I'm reading this and it seems like it's making the case that Shemitah and Yovel uh, are the ultimate uh, ends of, uh, of what Torah is about. Uh, yeah. Not, not that it's, we reach that point and it's like this messianic error that we, that we, we achieve it. And then we have to do the, we, we have to work again for another seven years to achieve it again. But it seems to be like it's the goal of uh, the end goal. Yeah, and it, it's it's sort of both, right? It's both the goal and it's that which makes it possible. Um, so it's it's sort of like, or even it's like the paradigmatic example of what this means. Um, so yeah, it's something we're aiming at, but it's also something that makes the kind of full fulfillment of the project possible. Maybe even makes, in, at least in the first version, like receiving the thing possible. So he's given, I mean, by highlighting these midrashim in multiple places, um, you know, he's he's picked a he's picked like one one or two sentences really out of out of out of Vayikra Rabbah in order to make this point. Um, when he's done it in a couple couple places, this is actually I think he does it in two or three more that are basically substantively very similar to what I brought you. Um, so for him, it seems to take on this really powerful significance, and he really wants this to be a central part of what it means to kind of live with the Torah. I was also thinking that, um, and this kind of links up to, to what Harvey was saying, 
that there's another a connection we can maybe draw also again back to Shabbat with this idea of the Neshama Chadasha, right? We're getting a new soul. And on Shabbat, we always hear about you getting an additional soul, right? Neshama Yatera. And that, like, mm-hmm. you think about Shabbat as sort of kind of like, you know, a, a taste of the messianic vision, some some kind of small bit of what is kind of the ultimate purpose. Shemitah is, again, like a, a kind of bigger form of it. Uh, we're not just getting an Hashem Yatera, we're getting an Hashem um, And so I, th- I think that reading of, oh, actually, in certain ways, the goal of Torah is Shemitah or Yovel. It's also what enables Torah. I think there's a lot you could do there and also putting in kind of Shabbat as both, you know, creation, purpose, fulfillment, all of that. Yeah. Um, I think also the, the uh, thanks for drawing out the the Neshama Chadasha uh, language because it's such a more kind of um, strong metaphor than or strong language than Neshama Yatera in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it's it's again this kind of like we become a new being when we are part of the whole, and that new being might be different. Um, than what we had before, but it's still related, but it's it's really new and it and it's new in virtue precisely of the kinds of connections it has to the, the things around it, i.e. the other other part, parts of the um. Yeah, Benny. It seems like, a, maybe I'm not understanding it 100%, right? But it kind of seems like a hard sell to tell people like, you know when you're the most free, when you're doing nothing and living with deep uncertainty, like that seems like a really hard sell. And so I'm like, I'm, maybe maybe there's like he's saying like, yeah, if you can achieve that, then you're really free. And so like freedom is actually really really hard, but like it doesn't seem like a like an ex, an accessible sort of for uh, like vision of freedom. I think it's also important to note right, when the Smartimet is writing, is there really a, is Shmita a live issue or problem, or is this a sort of imagined uh, ideal? Uh, for when there's people, you know, inhabiting and making making uh, agriculture in the land of Israel. He dies in 1905. Okay, so, yeah, so there's the beginning of this debate. It's the beginning of this debate. I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to know exactly when he wrote each piece of this. Um, But it's neither like an obvious question for him, I think, nor is it a kind of totally unimaginable question. Um, but whether he's alive, whether he's like, there's like an actual Shemitah that he's reflecting on or not, like he's saying that like the thing that you're doing is like letting go, that's like freedom. Letting go of everything, learning Torah and letting God, right? Like having complete trust in God. And sure, like maybe if that, if that, if, if maybe that is an ideal of freedom, but I feel like it's sort of like, it's, it makes it feel very inaccessible in a certain way. Totally. I mean, I think it's really like, right. If you, right. If you, I mean, certainly in like contemporary political discourse, I think it would be really hard to tell. And it has a kind of dark underbelly, which is, you know, someone tells you that you're, you're at your most free when you're, you know, sort of sitting quietly and trusting it'll all be okay. You know, it depends whom, in whom you're trusting, right. And who's telling you that, that makes it kind of, more uh, more or less tolerable. So yeah, there's a version of this that's a kind of quietism, a kind of just like sit with it. Yeah. Um, and well, and you, you might think that that's easier like that, the kind of submission that Mary Benjamin doesn't want. I, when you phrase it, 
when you phrase it like that, though, then it becomes almost like Shabbat because Shabbat, we, we let go, but we've prepared for it. So we're not fearful that we're going to starve on Shabbat. Uh, and we have the freedom to contemplate, the freedom to serve God, the freedom to actually, though, also rest and not be part of everything active at the moment. And if you tell you, say that Shemitah is a, is a Shabbat of a year, it's scarier because, you know, can you really prepare your harvest such that you have to get through the whole next year? Um, but it's a, a bigger version of what the freedom is that we have, that, that we actually can experience nowadays with, with Shabbat. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, you mean you're suggesting that we're just going to hope and pray and then, you know, God said it'll be fine. I think it's, it's we have to prepare for it. And, uh, and that that's, it's, I think it's easier now, a couple of thousand, two, three thousand years later, to do that. We, we maybe have the ability to do that. That, uh, that the people who relied on the agriculture and then we got to hope and pray it rains and, um, and then we have to have enough food. Um, but yeah, we, we can't just rely on waiting and hoping it's going to happen. You have to be proactive in making it happen. Yeah, it's interesting to me that this fun event doesn't talk about that, right? Like he, he's not going to highlight and then, right. When he talks about like, what are the things that people do in order to show that they're faithful to the project of Shemitah and Yovel, it's that they don't thresh, they don't sow, and they sort of pay the appropriate, you know, taxes to the appropriate parties. It's not that they like, you know, and the year before they start to stockpile, blah, 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 right? Like they're, it, it, there's no, to sort of play out the metaphor, like there's nobody doing the Shabbos cooking in this story, right? It's just the stopping. Um, and and I don't know if you, if, if that's just supposed to be kind of inter, like interpolated, you're supposed to be able to figure out that that's what's going on. Um, maybe in, in the world that he's imagining, Shemitah, it's just not possible to prepare your harvest in that way. Um, but yeah, he doesn't highlight it. No, I always imagine they, they managed to, to prepare in Egypt for seven years of famine you know, with, with the, the forewarning and kind of, it must've been, a, they must've had some technologies or something that we don't, can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, maybe, right. Like I, you know, I, I will defer to experts on Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern, you know, yeah. agricultural methods. Like the Joseph story, it's like the, the, the autocratic ruler is deciding to stockpile grain and takes literally everybody's grain for the, for like, for, for, you know, half a decade. So he can like, prepare for the yeah i guess i guess my my thing that i'm taking more issue with here is like yes trusting in god and like preparing for shemitah is the thing that that being like the pinnacle of freedom is the thing that like is, is more challenging challenging for me it's like really like i want to trust in god i don't know that you know that that's like it makes it, it makes a lot more that's what sort of like i think is the the, stick, the sticking point in this one for me yeah i mean there's a way in which like to to kind of to amp up that worry right um it's a little gaslighty it's a little like right like you're telling me because when it right that kind of if you didn't care about anything you know like (laughs) right right and like that kind of trust that you're supposed that this model thinks you're supposed to have is really terrifying because right i think you know i mean think of think of moments in your life where you're like i have to just sort of surrender and hope this all turns out okay um a moment I, I felt as I walked into the very busy room at the AJS conference last last, last week. Um, you know, did I, like, 
when you when you have to sort of have that surrender, that doesn't feel like a moment of freedom. And there's something kind of strange about someone telling you that that is freedom because it, it kind of belies your experience. Your experience is of unfreedom in a really profound way or, or at least of, of fear and of like lack of control. Yeah, Harvey. But they didn't, you know, you just described a situation that you're kind of a little afraid of and you're in, again, you're giving a presentation perhaps, but ultimately you are in control. I mean, you had to prepare you're responsible and you had to, you're the, it was for you to do. And, you know, if you can come through that with flying colors, which I'm sure you did, it must be a great feeling that you had the freedom to do all that. And, uh, and it was on you to do. Well, I'm going to challenge Harvey a little bit because right? you had to prepare and do everything to make that AGS presentation, to let your harvest go fallow for a year or whatever it is. You have to do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to attribute the success of that effort to Hashem. Right. And only by trusting that Hashem gives you the health and the strength and the intelligence to actually present at AGS or to leave your field fallow. And especially if you're living in the Safat MS era where there was less technology and so forth, you're going to say, this is Hashem did it. But yes, you got to do it too. Right now, to be fair, the thing I was afraid of was catching COVID. I mean, also afraid of other things. But what I when I said that, what I meant was, okay, like I put my mask on, I washed my hands, and now I'm in this room, and here I am, right? I'm like, either I'm going to get it or I'm not, and like those are the options. And in a certain way, that feels like it's sort of like biyadeshamayim, like I'm not in control of that, and it will, you know, it will have big effects on on whatever happens afterwards. Um, so like if you think about those moments of um, of sort of trust, yeah, the, the trust that's required in places where you think like this is going to be a matter of basically of chance, right? Whether whether my N95 mask is really going to protect me on the airplane or not um, is not something that is down to preparation or down to like some kind of in, enhanced labor in, in the beginning. Maybe it is to some degree, but there's also an element that's like, I don't, I'm not in control of that. And that doesn't feel like a moment of freedom. That feels like a moment of constraint. And so there's a moment that like that, that feels like a kind of mis, misalignment or, or mischaracterization. I think that's sort of what, what, what Benny is a little bit, a little bit worried by. Right. You, you, you could have done all the preparation for the AGS panel and then everyone else pulled out and it doesn't happen. Like that was nothing, that was like not in God's hands. Those are just like other people making decisions that affect like whether like, you know, I go back to the Shemitah example, you can do all the right things and then like some random light hits your field and suddenly you're not prepared for the Shemitah year. And it's like that, that's freedom. Like, you know, that's, that's kind of like the. Right. Like, yeah. And I think the, right, we, we started out Maybe maybe this actually kind of helps helps characterize why Shemitah is this pinnacle thing for for the Svatnamet. Is that we started out with a, a paradox of oh halacha constrains me, but halacha also allows me a certain kind of freedom to live a certain kind of life that if I didn't have halacha I wouldn't be able to live. Um, but the Shemitah piece adds in this like agricultural climate, you know, sort of meteorological uncertainty. That is not present, I would say, in maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, there are versions of this on, on Shabbos where like all of a sudden, you know, I don't know, 
it's a random event and now your your cholent doesn't cook itself so now you're hungry on Shabbos afternoon um like there are those cases but they're they're rarer and they're sort of less central and there's a way in which for Shemitah like there is the the halachic constraint there is the reward that that makes possible and there's also this tremendous agricultural uncertainty that is an economic uncertainty that is sort of making the whole thing feel like a higher risk operation. Okay, um, I'm gonna, in the interest of time, move on quickly to, uh, I think we'll just do one of these because they're, they're sort of similar. Um, so the model of, of, the models of freedom that we've sort of put forward, I think in this little, this little class was starting out with this question about like my individual self, if I'm constrained by halakha, and, and that allows me to live, live a certain way. Maybe I'm constrained by my relationships to other people. And that also both presents me with certain choices and certain limitations. Then we talked a little bit about kind of a social, a more social picture and a picture that's based on Torah and Torah making possible a certain kind of freedom. Um, I wanna close with uh, a passage from, from Moses Mendelssohn, who's a, a 18th century German philosopher, one of the first people to uh, enter the kind of European academy as a Jew um, and, and work within it, at least to some degree. Um, and he is interesting for this purpose because he's really focused on arguing for a lot less, a lot more freedom from constraint for Jews in, the, in public life. But he also is really concerned about the ways that um, political constraints can limit the kinds of thinking we can do and maybe even the kind of Torah we can learn. He says that implicitly here, given his audience, but I want to kind of lead us in the direction of the idea that not only right for the Svatimet, Torah is a kind of freedom. Torah makes maybe makes freedom possible. Um, but I also want to suggest maybe certain kinds of freedom make Torah possible or make a certain kind of intellectual endeavor possible. Um, okay, so I'm actually, I'm going to read uh, the second one, if we can scroll down. So the, the story behind this little letter goes as follows. Mendelssohn was a kind of, by this, by, by 1762, he's like really starting to get onto the philosophical scene. People are starting to pay attention to this guy. And he gets asked by uh, this guy, Isaac Iceland, who was a sort of famous um, political theorist to join something called the Wednesday afternoon group. And what they did in the Wednesday afternoon group is they got together and they had like essentially had snacks and they would talk about political philosophy. And they were interested in talking about a vision of, of freedom that was becoming more and more important as the enlightenment developed. And they, they write to him and they say, Mendelssohn, please, would you join us in our group? And this was a historic invitation because Mendelssohn's a Jew. It's a big deal. And Mendelssohn's being invited into the Wednesday night group. And Mendelssohn responds basically, Absolutely not. I'm not coming. I don't want to come. I'm not doing this. Um, and this is his reply as to why he doesn't want to do it. Um, and there's just time I think I'll just read. Birth, education, and mode of life reveal their influence on people's way of thinking the most uh, when, they issue, when the issue is the nobler part of philosophy, i.e. politics. Um, that in itself is an amazing statement, which we will save for another time. The fortunate Republican, uh, small r, i.e. member of a republic that allows certain kinds of freedom, surveys human society from a much higher point of view than the subject of a monarchy. And the subject of a monarchy is far above the position accorded me in civic life. 
To be sure, the freedom to think in almost Republican fashion blossoms under the rule of a Frederick, i.e. Frederick the Great of Prussia, but you will know how little my fellow believers are allowed to partake in all of the country's freedoms. The civic oppression, which we are condemned by a far too prevalent prejudice, rests like a dead weight on the intellect's wings, making it incapable of ever attempting the high flight of freedom. So for Mendelssohn, the kind of persecution under which he lives makes it actually impossible for him to engage in this philosophical enterprise, at least according to his own assessment of the situation. So he says, I'm not coming to your political philosophy group because I actually can't participate. I, I can't think in the way that you are thinking about questions of freedom because the conditions of my life weigh so heavily upon me. Um, and I think this is a kind of fitting place to end our study of Shemitah because it highlights what might be at stake or one of the many things that might be at stake in the kind of political reimagining that Shemitah offers. Because Shemitah offers, you know, as we've, as we've talked about potentially a, a way of reimagining, reshaping our political structures um, that, that provide for a lot more freedom from labor, freedom from debt, other kinds of oppression, slavery. Um, and for Mendelssohn, who was far from being a slave, far from being hungry, he was like pretty wealthy most of his life, um, nevertheless feels that he can't engage in, in philosophy um, and I think maybe the same thing is also true of Torah, that there are, there are kinds of constraint um, that make it impossible to really engage in this, this exercise. And so getting Shemitah right might offer us new opportunities to kind of re-envision what, what Torah look, might look like, what, what intellectual life might look like, um, as we reimagine what our, what our ethical environment might look like. I'll leave Renana with the last word if she's got Yeah, that. I just think um, it's a very fitting note to end on, having now spent five weeks um, learning learning Torah with all of you and the privilege we've all had to learn Torah together safely, comfortably. Um, and, you know, the, the privileges that have allowed for that, um, the privileges that allow us to explore Shemitah in both sort of the practical ways, like, you know, what what does it mean to kind of do Shemitah in Israel today? What are the sacrifices? Um, but we even get to ask that question um, is is something that Jews for, for centuries did not get to ask. And then we get to sit here and, and discuss how might Shemitah, even learning about Shemitah, might make us a better person. Um, and we're able to do that because of the ways that we have agency and freedom, whether that is uh, the, the responsibilities we, cho we choose to learn Torah together and to teach Torah, um, or the kind of uh, opportunities and, and political freedoms that we've been granted. Um, so I, it's just been a real, a real privilege um, and joy to, to learn with all of you and to get to teach. Um, and I really, I wanna thank Sarah for uh, for approaching me or, you know, discussing teaching together. Uh, I don't think this would have come together uh, if either one of us had been, had been, uh, had to do it on our own. Um, and I want to thank Trisha for approaching us to teach um, and for allowing us to, to, to do this and, and agreeing to, to go along with our wacky ideas and to all of you for, for showing up um, and for making the teaching such a joy. And also I, I, I want to thank, uh, First of all, I want to thank Renana for coming with me on this crazy ride and, and bringing me uh, new sources and, and putting together new sources that I would not have, uh, that I would have not have encountered, not have thought about. 
um, if we hadn't been working together, and also to uh, to Noah and also the rest of the Drisha staff who have made this made this a very very fun experience and also have just like made everything run incredibly smoothly. So thank you so so much for all of your support along the way. Uh feel a little on the spot now. Uh, typically, <laughs> typically uh, we end by saying thank you because we we feel that. So thank you, Ms. Zaker, and thank you, Ms. Stein. This was really, really wonderful. And thank you to everyone here for participating in Drisha's learning community, especially this very active participation. Uh, it's extremely pleasant. It really adds a lot to the experience. I know I value it personally and Drisha as a whole values it a great deal. While we are bidding adieu to this class um, with whatever bittersweet feelings that might bring for us, uh, we do have one more class in our Shemitah programming tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and you're welcome to join for the last session. Don't feel awkward if you haven't shown up for any of the others before. It's lovely. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, all of our Winters Mon programming is going to be online now. So if you would like to apply for everything, please do that. Or if you would just like to come to some of our afternoon classes or evening classes, you can of course do that as well. We're happy to see you whenever. <laughs> please be well and I hope to see you soon. <laughs>